Hi, this episode you meet Major General Retired Dave Clary. Dave grew up an Army brat as a cadet, was a singer in the corral. Uh, upon graduation, became an instructor pilot at Williams Air Force Base. Uh, from there, he migrated to uh, A-10 flying in the United Kingdom. Somehow, he was able to negotiate his way into a uh, A-7 on the USS Carl Vinson, where in one cruise, he, he achieved 160 traps. He's got, following that, he went back to the Air Force, uh, flew A-7s again in the UK, uh, and be, from that uh, point, he became commander of many, many commands throughout the U.S., uh, Hawaii, Korea, um, Arizona, New Mexico, many, many places. Uh, from that, he became a, a senior commander of troops in various, or of airmen in various uh, situations in the Middle East. Today, he still works in that uh, field as a consultant with Booz Allen. I think you'll like uh, hearing from Dave. Hey, there he is. Hi, Dave. Hey, John. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for, thanks for being part of this. Uh, so, Major General Clary, what would you like to, to as a message to the incoming class, the, the current cadets, the recent grads, or the old goats like us, what, what would you like to tell them about your Air Force Academy experience? Well, I would start with the cadets and just say, hang in there. Um, you know, it, 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 as, as everyone knows, you know, the transition from high school to college is pretty traumatic. And obviously, from high school to a service academy is I don't know, arguably twice as traumatic. <laughs> yeah. And, and then one thing someone said once, and I can't remember where I heard it or whatever, but somebody said, this too shall pass. You know, <laughs> we're 18 years old or 19 years old or 20 years old, and this is four years of our life that just seems to never end. And it was tough uh, to go through all of that uh, at the time. But you will graduate if you hang in there do the best you can. And, uh, you know, over time it becomes a smaller part of your life. And, and the funny part is, you know, it seems like when we got out anyway, I don't know if it was the time seventies or the time, or it, it's just normal for young people, but you know, we were ready to get out of there and, and, uh, leave it behind us. Right. But, you know, <laughs> as we get older, as you and I know, well, we go to football games and we start treasuring our friends. And I truly believe that the friends you make at the Academy will be the most important friends in your life. Uh, you know, you intersect and, and uh, meet them over and over through assignments, especially if you hang on as a career. But even my friends that went to the airlines, you know, uh, we get together again and uh, we enjoy each other so much. So I guess the message is, you know, hang in there. Uh, you'll graduate eventually. You'll go on to have great careers, uh, but you'll treasure your friends and your acquaintances that you made there and the friendships and the trust and the bonds and even the, and, and the spouses and the families. I mean, it, it yeah. all comes, it all comes around. So, so that kind of leads me to the, the follow-up is uh, where did you grow up and what, what got you there in the first place? Well, I'm a military brat. My dad was in the Army, and we lived in San Antonio at once upon a time. And he took me to an air show at Randolph Air Force Base. 
And I don't remember this specifically, but he tells this story that, you know, watching the Thunderbirds, um, I said to him, that's what I want to do when I grow up. <laughs> and uh, I do recall in elementary school, all I did was draw little airplanes. You know, we were, you know, we're uh, baby boomers and our parents' generation was all about World War II. And when we were growing up, there was a lot of stuff on TV about World War II and documentaries and movies and that sort of thing. Um, but I drew little airplanes and and um, it just became something that I was going to do, you know, uh, and I never wavered from that. Um, you know, through I tried to take all the courses and, you know, uh, science and technology and math and all that sort of stuff. And uh, I'll tell you an interesting side story that I never knew till my dad confessed maybe 10 years after we left the academy. But, uh, you know, uh, in San Antonio, I was in ninth grade. And coincidentally, I went to Theodore Roosevelt High School with a couple of other of our classmates. Uh, and um, we, my dad retired, <clears throat> excuse me, from the army. I think it was about 1969 and we ended up moving to the middle of nowhere we moved to a tiny little town in northern nevada uh you know didn't even have a stoplight it well it had a flasher um <laughs> and down? yeah in the middle of town at one intersection no other real red you know uh yellow green kind of light and there wasn't even a speed limit at the edge of town. It said resume speed when you got outside of town. But anyway, what, what my dad told me years later was that he did that so that I would have a chance to compete at the academy. You know, the analogy was I was a minnow in the, in the ocean in San Antonio, hmm. uh, you know, with so many military bases, Randolph, Kelly, Lackland, Fort Sam Houston, and there were a lot of military brats that, you know, came out of, there were a lot of military brats that came out of uh, uh, San Antonio. We ended up moving to this little town in uh, Yerrington, Nevada. <laughs> and I ended up, you know, playing varsity football and I'm all of five, seven, 160 pounds. And I was an <laughs> offensive lineman. Oh, wow. You know, my second year there, I was the, junior class president and my sister was the freshman class president and we'd only been there one year <laughs> and uh i ended up graduating number two or three in the school that sort of thing and yeah. and, and and i was able to get an appointment to the air force academy because nobody from my school had ever you know been to the air force academy and huh. uh um i was fortunate um you know, I've heard some of our classmates say, and I believe the same thing. I don't know that I could compete in today's day and age to get in, but uh, I was glad to be able to do that. And I was glad my dad did what he did. And I'm forever thankful for that. So did you end up getting a presidential nomination? No, I got a, uh, nom I got, uh, a nomination from Howard Cannon, uh, who was uh, a longtime senator from the state of Nevada. They actually named, you know, one of the uh, government buildings here in Washington, D.C., the Cannon Building, I guess, huh. when it, where the Senate offices are right okay. now. Okay. 
after him. That's cool. Yeah. So being an army brat, did you have a favorite place growing up that you visit that you lived in or? Well, um, uh, we, we lived in Thailand. We lived in Japan, uh, San Francisco and, um, San Antonio. And we kind of bounced back and forth. Um, the first 18 years of my life, I spent nine in San Antonio. So okay. probably the, I, I enjoyed that the most. My class. Did, did you have a least favorite place? And nah, not really. Um, I mean, Thailand was interesting. It was in the '60s during the Vietnam War. Yeah, what what are kids uh, doing in Vietnam in, in that area? Well, uh, my dad was assigned to Southeast Asia Treaty Organization. There used to be kind yeah. of a Southeast Asia equivalent to NATO, and. Um, I went to international school, Bangkok, for three years, which was quite interesting. We didn't have fire drills. We had bomb drills yeah. and stuff yeah. like that. And, uh, yeah, it would, but growing up with uh, embassy kids, in fact, one of my best friends, I think about this today and where he might be if he's still alive, but one of my best friends was uh, an Iranian diplomat's kids. Yeah. But uh, interesting mix. There were military kids there, obviously, but there were a lot of embassy kids from all over the world. So it was quite interesting. That's 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 a cool uh, that's a cool deal. I, I had something yeah. similar when high school when I went up in D.C. But yeah, that's a cool that's a cool thing. So then you go off to get your head shaved and your <laughs> your uniforms assigned. And you get to be a dually. What what was that like for you? Well, uh, it was tough. Um, I, I ended up having some, uh, just kind of physical problems. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but I had, I had some surgeries on my legs just to get into the academy. Um, and I had these scars and, you know, uh, when I, after like the second day wearing those boots, those brand new boots, uh, my scars just opened up and they started bleeding. And I just, I, uh, I just had to gut it out. I mean, I was taped up and I had to get taped up like every day, um, to get through that. Um, and so it, it was physically tough for me, uh, with all that running and then with my legs hurting so bad, but, you know, got through beast. And, uh, then the big shock was the academics. Uh, one thing that I suffered, you know, moving from, uh, San Antonio, you know, I was starting to get into that, you know, upper level academic stuff. And then we moved to Nevada and, uh, you know, I, uh, for instance, I, I said, okay, I'm ready for Spanish three as a sophomore. And they go, we don't have Spanish three. <laughs> and, um, uh, I had to wait a year and ended up having Spanish three. There was just two of us in the class. It wow. was kind of funny. And then, you know, uh, I was ready to take some of that higher level math, but, and yet again, they didn't have, I mean, we didn't have calculus. So that was the shock when I got to the academy, I kind of lost a year, year and a half compared to all the others. And everybody was so smart, you know, when we got there, I graduated, I don't know, with a three, nine or something like that out of high school or something. <laughs> But when I got to the academy, it was like first semester, I was like a 2.2 or something like that. You know, I was mostly C's and maybe a B that wow. first that first semester. Um, and then I sort of figured it out and 
maybe ended up with a 2.5 or something like that the second semester, which drove me to this idea. Well, the reason I'm here is to go to pilot training, right? Yeah. Uh, so as a, as a uh, three degree, as a sophomore, you know, we took some engineering classes and I got C's in those, but I was getting B's in history and psychology and stuff like that. And I said, I'm going to go to pilot training and, you know, try to have a life while I'm here. <laughs> I, I could have probably been an engineer, but I never saw the light of day. As it turns out, I, I, I studied pretty hard. I had to just to keep up. I think I ended up with like a two point seven or 2.8 by the time it was all said and done. But I ended up being a behavioral science major. You would have been one of the stars in our squadron. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You had some smart guys in there. I know. We did. We had some smart guys. At one time we had 20 guys on ACPRO, which was pretty comical. By the way, I don't know if you recall, but I was a Pink Panther as a dually. So so Humberto H. Alvarez was yep. my air officer commanding like he was for you the, the next well, we, year. We got him for two to th- two to three upper class years. He gave oh. us poisoning one one weekend. That was very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so what did you where did you go as an upperclassman? Uh, I went right up. Was it upstairs? Downstairs. I went downstairs one floor. I was in 40 right beneath you. OK. And so, you know. Uh, I knew pretty much most of the people in your squadron and I knew most, you know, how it goes, you know, the people that are adjacent to you or down the hall, that sort of thing. Well, you guys always screwing around with us. I'm (laughs) one of my favorite stories and I, you can confirm or deny it, but we were getting restricted because there were so many pranks we would do and we'd leave a pink paw print. And so they said, next time there's a prank done and a pink paw print's out there, we're going to restrict the squadron to, to the, you know, I can't go any weekends. And uh, the rumor was that 40 went and got some paint and then a paw print. And they, they started doing stuff and leaving our our signature there to get us in trouble. <laughs> I, I, to be honest, I don't remember that. But uh, there were a lot of pranks. I do recall that did part. You get, did you get involved in anything good? Any, any memorable uh... We weren't unique in this, but, you know, we 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 built a, a sauna out of our showers. Um, we took the shelves off of our, uh, you know, the middle shelf off of our bookshelf. We kind of uh, that we had above our desks as uh, at the time <laughs> and then padded and kind of caulked it with towels and stuff like that. If you put two of those up, I mean. You could have a about a three foot deep sauna. You plug, you, you throw a towel over the drain, and then just turn what it, I don't know. We had six or eight shower, you know, shower heads in in the shower, and it <laughs> filled up. And uh, you know, something to do on a weekend when you couldn't go downtown or whatever because it was the snow was six inches deep or whatever on the highway. And you would, and you would sit in the sauna and, and sit in the sauna. Uh, one of my favorite little deals was uh, you would fill up. I think they filled up some lo- sort of manila envelope with talcum powder. You know, uh, if, if there was uh, somebody you wanted to pull the prank on and you would kind of slide it under the door so that the open end was facing into the room. And then you drop a dictionary, you know, on that thing. And all of this talcum powder would eject. The funny thing is, if you would open the door right then and there, 
in your field of view, everything is white. So if, yeah. you, if you had two of your classmates sitting at their desks with their heads down, when you open the door, the, you know, the side of the, their face that was closest to the door was completely white. But then when they looked at you, there was a line right down the middle where the, you know, where the talcum powder didn't hit. And it was just so hilarious. Of course, they were kind of shocked. They didn't know what happened, you know, and Anyway, I sort of remember that one. And now for, and for the younger kids, a dictionary was what our definition of a fat book. <laughs> yes, yes. It wasn't online. It was about a three and a half, four inch wide book. I don't know. It was about eight inches tall by, I don't know, six inches you know, across and about four inches wide. So the, It was the, heavy, is the bottom the, line. The thing we did, similar to that, you did top. We, we'd put shaving cream in the envelope yeah and just leave shaving so it, it, there were different ways of screwing around yeah, that before yeah. they had carpet everywhere i guess you got carpet yeah. now so you'll have to come up with something different if you're screwing around now with yeah this. yeah and uh we used to do those uh um rodeos what do we call those things where we used to put the wax on our floor the buffers oh, the buffer yeah buffer rodeos and that sort of stuff yeah, so Boys I'll... and girls, if you listen to this, we used to take car wax, <laughs> melt it on our floors, and yeah. then buff it to make it shine. And it had... I can't imagine doing that kind of stuff today. Well, and then we, I don't know about you guys, we'd take flaming tennis balls and bounce them around. <laughs> the guy's newly <laughs> buff room that he'd have to go and rebuff it. It would yeah. be the mess around with people. That would be the thing that uh, would upset me <laughs> after yeah. all that work. <laughs> So your your squadron nickname was what? Was uh, uh, Alibaba and the Forty Threes? I guess that's politically incorrect anymore. But they decided to uh, check. I think it's the P Forty Warhawks, and as you probably know, I guess for a while there, thirty seven, thirty eight, thirty nine, and forty disappeared. Yeah, they and the cadet to- wing went down from forty four. I think it's like roughly forty four hundred people. And then it went down to 4,000. And so they got rid of, you know, four squadrons and then uh, brought them back. And they're the P-40 Warhawks. Interestingly, this last reunion we went to, I talked to the AOC, the air officer commanding of 40. And he said, oh, yeah, that Alibaba was never an official um, official name or logo or something. I went, oh, really? <laughs> it was Alibaba for all I knew. I didn't know it was illegal or whatever, but uh, you're emphasizing breaking the honor code by being 40. Oh, uh, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Who knows, man? Yeah. So uh, that leads me to the end of uh, Dooley year before you show up at 40. If you got to go to Siri. Yes. So um, Siri was uh, in hindsight, excellent training we uh the uh subject matter experts if you will were actual (laughs) vietnam prisoners of war i mean the if you know your history i mean we we were there obviously at the time uh the prisoners of war from vietnam came back in 1973 and of course we went through siri in the summer of 1973 and so um, they were there and the methods used in the training, uh, were pretty authentic. I mean, 
not pretty authentic. They were as authentic as it could be, as they could replicate. Without you know, killing. The, the, yeah. Without <laughs> hurt. You, you know, obviously there's a safety factor involved. But, I yeah. mean, the sleep deprivation and, you know, I wouldn't call it torture, but it was mental. Uh, it was a difficult thing to endure mentally. And, you know, and in your mind, it becomes physically uh, to some degree. So that was great training. The thing I remember about, the one thing I, I do remember is, you know, at the very end, um, um, the hike through the mountains and going through checkpoints and evading yeah capture and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, I think I went through in second series. I just remember it being one of the most physically miserable times in my life because we got to our checkpoint really early, but they wouldn't open it because, you know, the checkpoint rendezvous was supposed to be at, at a certain time, like 10 a.m. or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And it was cold. And by the end of the whole trek, I didn't own a dry piece of clothing you know, slept in a, a wet sleeping bag and my socks and my, uni, you know, the whatever uniform we were wearing and, you know, my undershirt, my underwear, everything, my socks, everything was wet. And I just sat there and shivered for hours. I remember that. And then I wanted to take a, a hot shower way more than I wanted to eat. <laughs> I mean, I literally spent an hour or two in a hot shower uh, before I went to eat. A hot shower is more important than eating to me <laughs> at the end of that whole thing. What did you go right from there anywhere else or was that the end of your summer? Um, I think I went to uh, airborne. I can't remember if I went before or after. I think it was third period. I went to airborne. So, so you and, and I had the same summer then we both had a vacation first series second and airborne third i think i think that's what i ended up doing and i uh, remember airborne specifically because i think i lost 15 pounds in in the series trek yeah I, I was it was amazing and i get to airborne and they're feeding us all we can eat and they're yelling at us and, and it's like nothing because it's even though it's hot it's uh yeah it's it, low altitude and all the food you can eat. <laughs> it was almost fun in a way for us. You know, I, I know for the soldiers it was tough. Uh, but compared to what we'd been through that first year, you know, and Siri and everything, you know, running and singing songs while we're running, how, yeah. how much better could it get than that? <laughs> and, we're, and we're twisting the Army songs to Air Force. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know what I remember? I remember arriving on the bus. You know, and our classmates that were there, that they were literally going to get on the same bus that we did and and go back to the airplane that we arrived on. Right. And yeah. fly back to Colorado. And I remember them yelling at us, going, calling us dirty legs, you know, oh, yeah. which is a demeaning term for someone who's not got airborne wings and all that. And I, and I thought to myself, those guys are just those guys have gone off the deep end. They're mental or something <laughs> like that. And then, of course, we went through the, the training and and when we got done, we were so pumped up and, and giddy and excited, you know, and then when the next crowd showed up, we were yelling at them <laughs> the same way, calling them dirty legs and all that sort of stuff. So your physical thing with your, your legs and your scars and everything, was that pretty much fixed by the time you went to Syria and Airborne? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, I never had another problem after that. I mean, interesting, you know. 
I was able to do everything, do the jump training and all that sort of stuff. It was just, it's just that I had scar tissue and that, and the boots and the new boot, you know, people have blisters, but think about me having this six inch long blister uh, that, you know, just never healed for the first four or five weeks is what it amounted to. And then when we got out of the boots, you know, it went away. And it toughened, you know, the scar tissue. Yeah. Up. You don't want, you don't want to talk about that stuff. <laughs> no, I, I just want people to understand that you did not have to suffer all four years with the. No, no, no. Yeah. Now, did you do anything cool? I'm not, I shouldn't say it this way. Did you do anything extracurricular as a cadet that that you did was noteworthy that you wanted to talk about? Um, like clubs couple, or, or teams? A, a couple of things. Uh, one was. I was on the honor committee for my uh, ju- junior and senior year. And that was kind of tough emotionally, you know, to sit on honor boards and pass yeah. judgment on your classmates about whether they stay or they go. Wow. And then we had that whole toleration clause. And uh, one of the toughest days, nights, actually nights, I guess, for me was, you know, um uh, Someone had, you know, turned himself in and uh, we ended up not, uh, uh, I can't even remember what we called it. Booting? (laughs) Well, we booted him out, but there was some sort of uh, some term that we used, you know, where we we would pass judgment. Mm. Um, I can't remember. But anyway, they turned themselves in and then we kicked them out. Whereas if we hadn't, if he hadn't, if he'd have lied about it and never said anything or just never spoke up about it, you know, uh, nobody would have known. It was one of those scenarios. Nobody would have known. So he, but, he had enough of honor to, to turn himself in and get booted for honor. And then we booted him. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, people left. So that was, that, you know, that was tough for me. Uh, and mostly um, I was in the cadet corral. Okay. Um, I heard you mention it a couple, a couple of your classmates in 36. I know John D. Dick and um, Tom, Tom Wyman were in the corral with me. That was kind of a cool thing. I mean, you tried out when we were dualies. I mean, there was actually, a. I want to say that I want to say they actually tried everybody out. I don't recall. <laughs> I just remember, you know, I'd actually sang, you know, in church, uh, growing up and um and so when we had tryouts uh, he asked me to sing this song and i actually knew the song from when i was in church and somehow that i guess that got me in but the cool thing is we took about six trips a year and uh as a dually and as a three degree and even you know the last two years the whole time i was there i was in the protestant choir and the cadet corral and between the two we got like six trips a year so that was kind of fun a way to a, one way to get out of the academy and then <laughs> the other thing was just ski club uh, as a as a dueling it was another chance to get away from the academy and not have to use up you know uh, a, a pass a weekend pass yeah what do we call them odps odp yeah and o- you get to pay what two bucks to go on a, in the club and then they give you a cheap deal a, a meal and drive you out to a yeah club. yeah and you take you actually took a book 
<laughs> or took homework yeah. with you on the way there or on the way back. I mean, a lot of people just slept, which is valuable use of time. But yeah, I however, up, however you I, manage it, yes. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, that was great. I learned to ski. Uh, and then, you know, it was quite inexpensive compared to what it is today, especially if you're in a ski club. You know, ended yeah. up skiing all four years that I was there. For, for people listening in, the last time I skied Vail, it was seven bucks for a cadet. Yeah, I remember. I tell the story that it was six bucks for a ticket to Breckenridge. Yeah. It's like over a hundred something now. Yeah, people just, they don't, they can't relate to that. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, last, uh, last academy question is, uh, what would you do for third lieutenant? Uh, third lieutenant, I went to Shaw. I... Uh, uh, got to fly in the RF-4C, which is the reconnaissance version of the F-4. Um, you know, did did the typical stuff, um, sit at the duty desk and, and that sort of stuff. But we got to do, we actually got to fly a fair bit. Uh, I remember doing simulators and I actually remember flying O2, mm. which was an old Cessna... Sky train push pull. Uh, it's got two engines on it. It's one in the front and one in the back, and has a twin boom, which was used as a forward air controller observation airplane. Hence the term O two yeah. observation dash two. Um, I remember flying helicopters because they had. And I guess both of these planes were. There must have been a search and rescue unit there because I remember flying. I want to say they were H3s or SH3s or something like that. Uh, so I had a couple of helicopter flights, a couple of those O2 flights, and a couple three F4 flights. Wow. So that was kind of cool. Pretty, pretty uh, firing, huh? Yeah, yeah. And then I guess you did T41 as a first I did. actually did T41 as a class during our uh, fall semester. I did do one thing that's kind of unique compared to most. Uh, I did uh, Boy State. I was a Boy State counselor. I don't know. They still have Boy State today where it's kind of a, you learn about government and stuff like that. And, and you become, you know, you represent your state. Um, uh, I went through Boy State when I was in high school. And then when I saw that was an option, uh, for a th uh, kind of a two, three week program. I, I got to do two states and I ended up doing Nevada boy state and Arizona boy state. And so you're kind of a counselor. Uh, they always had like service Academy guys at boy state. I, I didn't remember that until I saw it as an option uh, to go back. So uh, I did that. That was kind of fun. That's cool. Yeah. And then I did, I guess, I think I did Siri one summer as well. I was part of the Siri <laughs> cadre. So sat on the other side of the, the whole training spectrum and uh, did that. So it was kind of a leadership opportunity. And yeah. then the other, the other program was I did BCT, like yeah. most, most of us did. We all had to have at least one, one run. Yeah. Again, a leadership opportunity there. Now, did you um, get any awards when we graduated? No, I heard you ask some of the other guys you talked to about where you graduated in the class. I don't remember the number exactly, 
all I remember is I did the math and I finished one slot above the top third or, you know, one third of the way through the class. So <laughs> okay. I, I brag about being in the top third of the class. Um, well, I, I brag act- about, yeah, they, they, they don't have, a, they have more, more guys in the honor grads than they had in the back row. Yeah. So I was in the back row, and so fewer of us than the honor grads, so we're more rare than the honor grads. Hey, but Mark Welsh was back there with you, so. I don't know if he's that far back. Some of of those guys did quite well, ultimately. Yeah. So that that, uh, leads us on to uh, Williams Air Force Base. So Williams Air Force Base, um, one of our classmates, Bill Dunn, was from Phoenix, Arizona, and – I ended up uh, spending a lot of time at his parents' house that, you know, kind of uh, after graduating, it was just a place to get away from uh, Williams. But um, I sort of played the game to try to try to figure out how to get to Willie. You know, we went through this lottery system and I signed up to be the second class at Willie. And uh, as luck would have it, I ended up getting my first choice. And so the class ahead of us was the Jack Cattons and, you know, uh, uh, that a lot of the guys, as I recall, the class in front of us at Willie was like the number one choice of all of the pilot training bases. So um, I ended up uh, going to Willie and uh, as it turned out in our class, in, in our UPT class 7708, there, if I remember this right, there were 38 Zoomies. There was one West Point guy that did kind of the inner service transfer like you did. And then we had 10 women. And oh, as wow. history would, uh, as, as it turns out, it was a historical class. It was the first class with women, you know, uh, women aviators in the Air Force since World War II. So... Wow. Uh, it was it was an interesting time and I'm still friends with uh, all of, you know, all of our UPT class as I look back uh, on on our time there. And you stuck around to be an IP, right? Yeah. So uh, um, I ended up getting married the day after we graduated from pilot training. So I, I met uh, my my bride-to-be, uh, Lynn Iacobelli, at a party. Interestingly, it was um, um, an engagement party with one of our classmates and, uh, and a young lady that lived in Phoenix. And so my connection was our classmate, and Lynn's connection was, this was her neighbor, you know, two two houses down and across the street from where she lived in Scottsdale, Arizona. So the funny story I tell is, so Lynn's at this party and I, I never met, I hadn't met her yet. She was out on the back patio with Jack Catton and I still tease Jack to this day <laughs> that he actually met my wife before I did. Um, but, you know, she met, I don't know, there were probably 15 of us at this event, uh, this engagement function and i ended up at the crab dip with my friend bill dunn and uh this little old lady walks up to us and says 
in this Norfolk accent, you know, y'all boys look so nice, you know, with your short hair. Of course, this was the seventies, right? And she was talking to us and she's telling us all about her husband. Her husband was Naval Academy and he was a <laughs> Naval aviator and all this sort of stuff. She goes, you need to meet my husband, Fred, Fred, you know? And so Fred comes over and we start talking about Academy and flying and this, that, and the other. And then, and then, uh, then the immortal happened or, or the inevitable happened. You need to meet my daughter. So, uh, Mrs. Yacobelli runs out to the back patio grabs Lynn and then, you know, introduces us. And so, um, and the other funny little tidbit that happened that night is somewhere in all of this conversation, you know, the name Yacobelli comes up. Yeah. And I go, I bet I, you know, just trying to be clever. I said, I know how to spell that. And she oh, goes, no way, no <laughs> way. And so I, I start off, I go, I-A-C-O-B-E-L-L-I. And she was floored. I mean, she nearly fainted. Wow. Uh, the truth is, when we were doolies, there was a guy at our tables, one of the table commandants <laughs> was named Yakabuchi. Okay. And it was spelled I-A-C-O-B-U-C-C-I. You know, and back in when we were doolies, we had to memorize everybody's name and where yeah. their hometowns and <laughs> their girlfriend's name and their dog's name. And we had to know current events and all that sort of stuff. But I remembered spelling that guy's name and I just took a wild guess. So now, here's the real interesting part for <laughs> younger people. Now I knew how to spell the last name. And so I thought, you know, after that night was over, I'm going to call her up. So there's this old fashioned thing called the phone book. <laughs> so if you opened up the phone book, everybody's name was in there alphabetically. And it had, you know, name, address and phone number in it. Um, so I looked up Yacobelli in the Scottsdale part of the phone book and there were only two and I knew what street they were on. Cause that was the street we were on. Right. And I knew they lived two doors down. So there was the phone number right there. I didn't have to ask her for the phone number. I just called the phone number and yeah. I started talking to her. And that's how I got my first date. And then one year later, uh, we graduated and uh, I got married the next day. So all of my classmates and UPT buddies were at the wedding and all of her sorority sisters from Arizona State University were there. And it was it was kind of a fun night. I'll bet. But uh, back to your question, back to your original question, I ended up staying there. I, I ended up picking T-37s because she had been there since she was in the sixth grade or something like that. And I, her dad had retired quite a few years earlier. And I thought. Getting an F4 to Korea would, you know, getting married is pretty traumatic, but getting married and then you know, going to Korea for a year would be, you know, five times as traumatic. So I said, <laughs> eh, I'll talk to these folks and see if I might be eligible to uh, stay here and be an instructor pilot. And so I stayed at Willie and, um, you know, Mark Welsh and Greg Sanders and Tony Denise. I mean, a whole bunch of us ended up uh, being IPs there. And uh, it was a lot of fun. It was just a lot of fun um, to do that. And then, you know, uh, you actually learn quite a bit. You know, you know, the old adage, you know, if you if you can't do it, teach it. Well, you end up you end up learning probably three times better when you're trying to teach that oh, yeah. stuff. So I learned the basics of flying uh, that suited that was 
helpful to me for the rest of my flying career. So, so then, then I, I'm curious, what did you fly in, uh, uh, was it Bentwaters, the UK? Yeah. So um, when it came time, you know, for the FAPES, first assignment IPs, you know, we sort of had kind of a, we would go in groups, I don't know, five or six of us would be eligible for assignment in the same block of airplanes. And as it turned out, uh, in my block, there were no F-15s and no F-16s. Um, there were like three A-10s. And so I asked to do, I asked for an A-10 and I, I got it. And they actually, I want to say they actually gave us choices and I actually chose, chose to go to England. Um, which was a great time as well. Uh, so I spent, um, as it turns out, a little less than three years, which is the normal amount. I ended up spending two and a half years because, as you might recall, um, I got to do a Navy exchange assignment. Yeah, um, so what, what, how did you go? How did that happen, you asked? Bent waters to, to Lemoore, of all places. So... <laughs> Um, a guy in my squadron, uh, uh, one of the flight commanders who was actually, yeah, he got, he got an A7 assignment to Jacksonville, Florida to the A7 uh, as the Navy coined the term RAG. I don't even know what that stands for. We call them replacement air air group. Yeah. which is the equivalent of the replacement training unit that we had basically where you learn to fly, fly you know, yeah. uh, after your initial uh, undergraduate pilot training or your initial pilot training. Yeah. You learn to fly the specific airplane you're going to be working yep. on. Yep. So I thought, wow, that's cool. I never thought about that. And I said, how did you do that? He goes here, just write a letter. Boys and girls, before there was email, we used to write letters, even from overseas. So I wrote a letter. Who did you write the letter? To, to uh, the Military Personnel Center. I, I happen to know the, the office. I mean, I, from the guy that I you know first yeah. learned of this opportunity, uh, I, I wrote a letter. I said, hey, I'm interested in, you know, uh, an exchange assignment. What can you tell me about? I, I mean, it was just a very open, generic request for information. He goes, and what happens? <laughs> no, what happens is he sends me a list. The guy in the shop sends me a list of all assignments, you know, that are available, all fifty, and he and then he showed me the ones that are going to be like available in in sort of the time frame that I was looking. And he goes, take the top 10 you want and rank order them. Wow. Okay. And uh, I think I put A7 fleet assignment as my first choice and A7, uh, you know, training unit as my second choice. And so, uh, and by the way, so I sent that letter and then three weeks later, I got that reply. So I filled it out. I put my top 10. I mailed it off. Three weeks later after that. (laughs) I get an assignment notification that I'm going to Lemoore, California. I'm going to attack squadron 122, which is the, uh, the, the training squadron. Okay. And, uh, and so off we go, we go to Lemoore, California from, uh, Bentwaters, England. And you'll appreciate it. Yeah. Real quick. Bentwaters is close to what big city? 
Um, it's about 80 miles north of London. If you're, if you're familiar with how yeah. um, England looks or United Kingdom, it's that big fat part. Uh, the Midlands, they call it, right? Yeah, actually Suffolk, Norfolk um, area of England. East Anglia is what it's called. And, and just for uh, geographically challenged people, what is the next big city next to Lamar? Um, <laughs> Fresno is about 30, mi- 33 miles north of, uh, due north, as it turns out, of uh, Lemoore, California. You're three hours from L.A. You're three hours from San Francisco. You're about two hours from Yosemite and a, or 90 minutes from Yosemite and 90 minutes from the ocean. So you're kind of in the middle of nowhere, but in your, you're in the middle of all kinds of neat things to do. But immediately near Lemoore is nothing but, you know, uh, farmlands for as, as far as the eye can see, though. You're in the San Joaquin Valley. You're in the middle of the San Joaquin Valley. My wife is a proud Lemoore High School graduate. That's why I have to ask. <laughs> oh, you went to high school in Lemoore? No, my wife did. Oh, okay. Her, her, she was a Navy kid, but that was her last year and a half. Was it Lemoore? Yeah. 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 So, okay. So I have, I, because I, I, I lived this as well. What was your indoctrination to the world of the Navy like? Um, I enjoyed it. Uh, made the most of it. Uh, so uh, you'll appreciate this story. When I get to the squadron, you know, I have an office call with a skipper. And in the Navy, this, this particular squadron is called a post command. So it, it, it's a much bigger squadron than your average, fl- you know, A7 fleet squadron. Right. And so... It's the, the squadron commander is actually a captain, not a commander, which is typical of the, you know, average uh, fleet squadron. So I walk in the door and uh, nice to meet you, Skipper. Have a seat. Uh, he goes, so when do you want to join the real Navy? <laughs> and, I, and I was sort of hoping he was going to ask that question because what my friend did, I ended up doing the same thing. So um uh, and what that was is spend, you know, learn to fly the A7 because I didn't know how to do that. You know, I'd flown A10s and T37s prior to that. So uh, about five, six months to learn to fly the A7 through all of the different, you know, um, capability, the ground, you know, using the radar, doing nuke deliveries, you know, uh, close air support, electronic warfare, all that stuff. Um, and then... Um, he goes, I need about a year out of you, and then I'll let you go to a fleet squadron. I want about a year's payback on the training we're going to give you. And then, you know, I'll let you go for the last half. So, you know, in a three-year tour, I'll get, I'll have you for 18 months, and you can go to a fleet squadron for 18 months. And so right there on the first day in his office, he pulls out of that old-fashioned gun, what do we call it, uh, gray, old gray metal desks. He pulls out a folder and he looks at the fleet deployment schedule for the, like the next two years. And he goes, okay, so six months of training, 12 months IP, what you need to do, uh, back then the Navy did 18 month cycles where, um, where when you came back from cruise, the first six months is blocking and tackling and, and you end up turning over half the squadron. So. Half the squadron leaves and you get a whole bunch of new guys all at the same time. Yep. 
And, and so it's all, you know, basic stuff, basic flying formation, flying, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And then this middle six months is getting ready for deployment. And then the last six months is deployment. So he says, you need to join right when they start this, the, the middle six months. And so he goes, all right, that's going to be either a tax squadron 27 or 97. We'll figure it out later, but uh, let's shoot for that time frame. And so I did all of that. I, you know, learned to fly the airplane and was an instructor pilot for a year. And by the way, some of my best friends uh, to this day are some of the Navy folks that I, I, I flew with. I went to the wet wedding of one of my friend's sons just uh, four months ago. Huh, and cool. we're, we're still very close. Um, but uh, I ended up join, uh, joining Attack Squadron 27. And so, you know, uh, we went to Fallon, which is part of the air wing deployment and where all of the different squadrons from, you know, different communities are getting together and we start, you know, planning and, and executing and practicing uh, for our wartime plans, uh, contingency plans as we go around the world. Um, and then, of course, we did a lot of, you know, at sea stuff. So in that middle six months, I was probably gone five of the six months. And then obviously I was gone for the entire six months um, yeah. uh, for the last six months. And so I was West, West Coast uh, on the Carl Vinson at that time, which was ported out of Alameda, which is Oakland. And um, we would fly aboard, you know, uh, the ship and then in theory off uh, on our cruise. So we did a NORPAC, a Northern Pacific, Westpac down, you know, uh, the Kamchatka Peninsula, you know, do the Aleutians. Back then, Aleutian uh, working, hiding amongst the islands in the Aleutians. If we were going to have World War Three, you know, uh, <laughs> we did a lot of that stuff. And uh, ended up in the Indian Ocean for most of that time. Uh, did a lot of work just outside of, you know, um, it, it, in the Middle East, basically. So um, did, two questions. Did, did you do the Blue Nose thing? Did you cross the Arctic Circle? Uh, didn't cross. No, I don't recall that. We did do the equator thing. You did the uh, uh, All right. Are you shellback? Shellback. So, yeah. oh, Yeah. Um, that's, that's pretty entertaining. Folks. That's a that yeah. That is a, 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 a what do you call it? A ritual, a passage, a rite of passage, if you will, <laughs> when you cross the equator for the first time. It's At least with <laughs> with the navy, uh, the polite term is hazing. Yeah. Yes. So uh, my roommate had to go through this as well. Uh, he'd been an East Coast guy, and now he's a West. And he'd never crossed the equator on the yeah. East Coast because yeah. he was always in the med. Uh, so both of us had to go through this. So he tried to help me out <laughs> and gave me some khakis to wear. And I had a T-shirt on and the gouge was or, the, yeah. the you know, the trick was to put wear knee pads because we were going to be crawling around on our hands or knees on the flight deck, you know, or worse. which. Uh, yeah. And so uh, long story short, as soon as as soon as I came out of the door, the blue spray paint was there. <laughs> and they put Air Force guy on my back. Yeah. So I got it twice as bad as everybody else. But uh, it was good fun. Um, and 
yeah, it, it's one of those one of those memories. Um, but uh, I have plenty of sea stories, which would eat up way more time than you have. Well, um, let me let me segue then to the uh, the question I usually ask at the end of the line thing, and that is, do you want to share any close calls, and and what what happened? All right, I'll share. I'll share a couple. Uh, the first one involved the day I'm going to go to the ship. Right after the six months workup, you know the the boohoo farewell with the family. Uh, get in the plane. I'm number three in the division, which is what we would call a four ship in the Air Force. And uh, number one takes off. I want to say we were doing eight seconds spacing. Number two takes off. And I'm about to release brakes when I look down the runway and I see uh, number one rotate and his right wingtip starts to fold. Oh, I'm going, oh, my God. And as as he as he starts to lift off, the wingtip comes off. Of course, now he's got no lift on the right side. So he starts this ginormous roll and he's, you know, and I hit the radio and go bail out, bail out, bail out. And he ejects right when he gets to about the 90 degree point. And the way the geometry was, he ended up ejecting right over the runway. You know, horizontal, think, picture this. He, you know, he ejected horizontally uh, with the runway. So, he was ejecting towards us, if you will. And it was almost like the chute opened and then lady, he did a face plant, you know, uh, cause he was like, I don't know, three, five feet off the ground, literally. And then when the chute opened, he just stopped and then, and then did a face plant on the runway. Meanwhile, number two is, you know, at high speed down the runway there picture this there's a canopy on the runway there's a wingtip on the runway and there's a human body on the runway and he's accelerating to take off so he ends up aborting fortunately he was able to avoid all of that debris by the way there's a smoking hole between the taxiway and the runway at this point well yeah and 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 then i'm i am you know i had just started my role but i you know was able to uh, abort pretty quickly but the long and short of that was they, they call us back in the squadron and go, okay, we're going to top you off and shoot you off. Oh, yeah. Went, whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, don't you guys want to know what happened or, or take some notes or figure it out or like. figure, figure something out? <laughs> and they said, oh, oh, yeah. Uh, and anyway, we ended up spending the night. We did our you know thing. And then I had to leave the three ship out to the ship the next day. But I, I came home after all that boo-hoo and, and they go, what are you doing here? I go, well, long story. <laughs> so the other one, which is, so the other story, which is probably as close to death as I've ever come. Uh, and I've had a few scrapes. Um, we were coming back and going through the Aleutians one more time, but this time it's January mm-hmm. and we're north of the Aleutian islands and the Russians launch after us. And back in that day, you know, uh, our practice, if you will, was to, to not let them get within 250 miles of us without us literally being in a position to shoot them down. In other words, we were going to be at their six once they got because uh, within a certain range of their, you know, yeah. air to uh, surface, you know, anti-ship missile that they or had the, at the, the time. 
Bears or blinders or who was coming? Uh, Bears and Badgers, for the most part, uh, would come out for it. They launched against us, I want to say, 23 times trying to find us. Yeah. And uh, so the the sporty part of this was the weather was 0-0. Zero, zero. In other words, <laughs> you couldn't see the end of the flight deck yeah. uh, when we were on the catapult. And we kind of went, well, what are we going to do? You know, that wasn't – they didn't care about the answer to that question. The, the, the answer to the question was you will be in firing position before they get into missile firing range. Yep. So we launched 12 airplanes that day. I was part of what we called the bucket brigade. We used to hang these 2000 pound buddy stores on the a seven. The a seven was very frugal with gas because it was a single engine turbo fan, believe it or not. Yeah. Um, and you put in a, we could carry 10,000 pounds internal and I could, you know, with two buddy stores, that's another 2000 pounds each. And one of those had a basket in it. Right. The so Sergeant Fletcher. So I was the, I was one of the airborne refuelers. And so what we would do on, on, into, into the direction that the Russians were coming, you know, we'd all just vector out that way. I'd take off uh, ahead of most and the Tomcats would hit me on the way out. Yep and drain me, you know, and they'd top off until I was out of gas. And we had this all figured out, you know, I, I knew how far I could go and then come back. And then I would climb to 40,000 feet and loiter. That was in theory, the normal thing to do, just come back to 40,000 feet, loiter and, and, and wait till recovery time. Um, but the weather's zero, zero. Right. And so there was no recovery time. Yeah. Uh, and eventually, um, in, instead of the normal one cycle, uh, um, as it turns out, it was a little more than one cycle before we, the Russians didn't actually figure out where we were on that one. And so once they were kind of off and, and moving away, our guys, the, the other planes would, we all came back and, you know, we started going, Hey, when are we going to recover? And, uh, actually before all of that, since I had been I was back way before the others and I was way overhead and there was somebody else with me an S three or something that just happened to be airborne or something. <laughs> I can't remember it. I can't remember. There was another airplane. There was just two of us. I want to say, yeah. and they said, Hey, go find some weather. And I went, well, how do you want me to do that? They go, <laughs> well, go down to about 500 feet and just start flying until you find a clear spot and then tell us where it is. I went, okay how's that gonna work yeah. how's this gonna work well anyway i tried that for a little bit i go hey i can't do this very long and they go they said all right never mind just climb back up and uh eventually everybody came back and here we are all hovering overhead now we're running out of gas yeah and we're going hey what's the plan and you know stand by stand by stand by stand by <laughs> and finally we i mean we we're getting within minutes of running out of gas now and somebody goes, hey, all right, here's the plan. Let's all fly south. And the first one to flame out, you know, we'll all descend together with the flamed out airplane. And let's all eject about a thousand feet above the water. <laughs> and at least we'll be in the same spot in the ocean. And maybe they can throw us a raft. You know, This is in January. This, the- is, this is in January, north of the Aleutians, you know, in the Arctic Ocean or whatever. Um and no kidding, that was a plan. We turned south and they were going, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. Stand by, stand by, stand by. And eventually a uh, Marine KC-130 showed up. Wow. 
and literally saved our lives um, uh, because it had two baskets. If it only had one basket, somebody had gone down. So we were, we're like, okay, who's within, you know, who's got the lowest amount of time left? And some guy goes, I should have flamed out already. I go, okay, you're first. <laughs> get just enough gas, get five minutes, you know, get five minutes of gas or 10 minutes of gas. Just get, yeah. be on there for a minute, get some gas and get off. And so we kind of did this until we all, you know, with the intent that we all get about to an hour's worth of gas. And so we did that wow. and we drained that guy and then he disappeared. And then, and then, um, an Air Force KC-10 shows up. And uh, for those of you who don't know, they're capable of refueling Air Force airplanes with the boom, but they also carry a basket. And <laughs> they have tons of gas. Yeah. And so this Air Force KC-10, I'll never forget this, comes on the radio. And whoever was talking on the radio started whining. They said, well, I don't know who you guys are or what the deal is, but we were told to come out here. They started whining. Yeah. And the greatest radio call I ever heard in my life <laughs> came out from one of us. I can't remember who it was. Shut the F up. Roll into 15 degrees of bank. Put the boom out. That was it. Yeah. For the next 90 minutes. Everybody. That up. guy never said another word. Yeah. He rolled into 15 degrees of bank and he never rolled out. We just sat there in a circle for That's 90 great. minutes and then all of us topped <laughs> off until the weather came up to about you know a quarter mile viz and maybe 100 feet or something like that so first airplane first tomcat land you know when it finally got up to that good first tomcat lands okay first a7 lands okay third a7 crashes on the flight deck oh geez oh god here we go wall to wall you know they they didn't shove him off they did crane him out of the area but they had to do two you know, walk, human shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder FOD walks up and down the flight deck twice. Takes a little bit of time, folks. Uh, yeah. And uh, I ended up landing like four and a half hours into this sortie. Yeah. And by the time I finally got aboard, it was like, you know, three-quarters of a mile, 200 feet or something like that, which is almost VFR. And you can see the ball, right? And are you – you guys are flying ACLS. You're not doing the breaker to – the normal thing no 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 we're flying you know acls which is yeah. what does that stand for basically it's an ils it's control. a precision instrument approach to the carrier automatic control landing system i think something like that, something like that. Uh, we did have autopilot auto land but it was like <laughs> nobody's doing it what no 17 <laughs> things had to work perfectly no, no. in order to do this you know in zero zero so yeah. it, we were better off not doing that and waiting yeah. and hoping for the weather so i ended up landing and and uh a year later my stateroom buddy visits me at the house and says something about that night and says i literally didn't think i was ever going to see you again and my wife goes huh oh, yeah. you know because i never told her that story until until she heard it that night um uh, but, you know, it came pretty close. I mean, there was a plan in effect that we were going to fly south. And when the first plane flamed out, we were all going to descend together and eject together. And, and just the same speed out. This, when he, what he's talking about is you, you, your blue water ops in this 
situation. There's no place to go. Yeah. The, the nearest divert was Misawa, Japan, 1,500 miles away, and yeah. we weren't going to get there. Yeah. Uh, we did blue water ops, which you're familiar with, John. I mean, you, you have to get back aboard. That's all. There's no other option. I would say other than ejecting in the water. That's the other option. Flying with blue water ops. Yeah. Because we're in the IO so much. And I, yeah. that, there's nothing out there either. But cool. I'm quite proud of that uh, tour. And I Certainly. hold my head high amongst naval aviators when I tell them, you know, yeah. one, one workup and one cruise, I got 160 traps. Yeah. You know, and a third of them were at night. And uh, so you're, you're a Vincent Centurion. And it was, and every single one of them was by myself. Yep. Yeah. Well, I was in a single, single seat, never flew aboard, never had a T2 or an A4, which was the training planes at the time. And I never had an instructor in the airplane. So you never had an NFO like me telling you, <laughs> get out of us. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. I was on my own. Yeah. We had, we called it the family car, three of us. NFOs and one pilot, and he was always just telling me, "Get those guys to shut up back there." <laughs> yeah, yeah. We had the Garudas on our uh, on our ship. What was that? One third VAQ one thirty four, I think it was, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 and the Vincent being a nuclear boat, you must have good ice cream. Yes, we had good ice cream. <laughs> the cold burners. We we'd have, uh, have auto dog. We used cool. to call yeah. it auto, auto dog because yeah. it looked like dog stuff when it came out into the ice cream cone <laughs> there were some catch i, I love the lingo i mean I, I just really enjoyed my time with the navy and, other than nearly dying a couple three times <laughs> but other than that <laughs> and, and then from there you got to go to alabama went to alabama uh showed up they said hey goldwater nichols had just happened right and jointness was the rage you know if you were going to be anybody in the military you had to be joint you know, and they, they looked at me and they go, hey, you're going to teach. You know, I got there on day one. They said, oh, by the way, we didn't tell everybody this, but, you know, I don't know, 20 percent of the class is going to stay behind and be instructors. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I'm toast. Um, and sure enough, because uh, joint was such a big thing, they said, you're going to be a joint instructor. I go, I don't know joint. I know Navy and I know Air Force. I didn't do joint. I didn't do a joint staff. I don't know joint staff processes. Ah, they go, well, the you're Army. the closest thing we got. And <laughs> so I ended up teaching. <laughs> yeah, I was an Army brat. So anyway, uh, I ended up teaching joint uh, professional military education for two years. And then I went back to Bentwaters. Yeah. And I had my squadron command tour while I was there. And then from that, it was a bunch of commander stuff, right? From that, Yeah, to- I actually had two squadron commands at Bentwaters. That was another funny story. So I was a fighter squadron commander. And then at a closing base, you know, after the wall came down in, in Europe, this is 1993 time frame, and the wall came down in 89, right? Uh, the Berlin Wall. Yeah. Um, and um, we were a closing base and so we're getting rid of airplanes and getting rid of people and we're going to shut down the wing and so a big deal was we it was our policy to make sure we did all the if anyone was going to get a post uh, tour medal you know we had to submit the paperwork and actually pin it on them before they left and you know uh what was it awards and decorations you know so all and and their uh, 
officer evaluations. All that stuff had to be done before they left because once the wing shut down, there was no going back, right? To find somebody and say, hey, where's my whatever? And so uh, I was just doing that post squadron command. And I get this call from the wing commander. It says, hey, what are you, uh, what are you doing? This is like 5 p.m. on a <laughs> Tuesday. That's what it was. It was a Tuesday. No kidding. I remember. He goes, what are you doing right now? I go, nothing, watching TV. He goes, hey, come over to the house. So I'm a lieutenant colonel, and the wing commander's inviting me to his house. I'm going, what's this all about? Uh-huh. So I show up. He goes, come on in. What do you know about calm? Which was, you know, kind of a s- s- question out of the blue. And I go, well, <laughs> back then they did, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, they did radio communications they used to own air traffic control at at that time and computers were new but they were doing computers they actually did the 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 telephone exchange you know we had operators at this old raf base we actually had operators (laughs) you know with the plug things and anyway he goes you don't know you don't know anything about com do you go no sir i don't he goes well you're going to learn fast because uh, day after tomorrow, you're going to be the comm squadron commander. I went, oh, he goes, yeah, but don't tell anybody. I haven't fired the incumbent yet. So, <laughs> but here's what I need you to do. I need you to go talk to the base commander and figure out what's going on. And you guys sort it out. I said, yes, sir. So <laughs> my next phone call that night, I go, what's going on? He goes, come see me in the morning. So I go talk to him in the morning, go, yeah, yeah, here's, we're firing this guy and here's why. And he goes, all right, here's the deal. Thursday morning, 0730, not 0729 and not 0731. Oh boy. I'm sorry. No, he said 0731. It's not 0730 and not 0732. I want you at the door of the comm squadron building at 731. So I took my little car and did the... I did a couple of dry runs yeah. to figure out how long it was going to take me to get there, you know, and as it turns out in this squadron, the way it was set up, the conference room was the first door on the right. So I literally closed the door on my car. And of course, my parking spot is like the second closest one to the front door because the colonel slot, the wing commander slot yeah. is like the first one closest to the door. So I literally come out and uh, at 731, he literally comes out the door, he opens it, he holds it open for me. We walk in the door, we turn right, right into the conference room, and there's all of these ashen-faced officers and some senior enlisted people in there. And the, the base commander introduces me and says, here's Dave Clary. He used to command the 91st Fighter Squadron, Tactical Fighter Squadron. He knows how to command. Dave, over to you. And he walked out the door. (laughs) That was my change of command. Wow. And the only premise that I was told is, you know, this is, uh, we're lacking leadership. We know you can lead. You know, the airmen will take care of you. They'll manage. This is a good squad. And they just had no leadership. Wow. So just don't screw it up. And so I walked in there and of course I go, you know, I did about a minute speech and said, I'm here because I was told uh, you need leadership. I know how to lead. Uh, So what do we need to do? Of course, you could have heard a pin drop. Nobody said a thing. I went, okay, I'll come visit you one at a time. And then let's hope you can open up and talk. And 
sure enough, I went, the first person I went to see was the first sergeant. And we went, I made the rounds and finally figured it all out. But uh, that was a great, I only had command of that squadron for six months, but it were 250 enlisted people. And boy, I'll tell you what, that's where I learned how to, <laughs> how to lead enlisted troops, because I really didn't learn that part. I, I learned how to, you know, lead a combat squadron in combat with a bunch of knucklehead pilots, but uh, I never had the chance to lead this many enlisted, you know, yeah, yeah. and it was my full-time job. I didn't have to worry about that flying thing. So I wore BDUs, battle dress unit, basically fatigues or whatever they're calling them nowadays. Um, I never wore a flight suit for the rest of my time at Bentwaters. And well, I'm, so, sure that, I'm sure that set you up for uh, leading all kinds of people. Yeah. So from there on, it was, uh, you know, command and staff. I was a, went to war college and then I was a group commander and then I was a wing commander twice and I ended up flying F-16s twice. I was a two-time F-16 wing commander once at Cannon in New Mexico, once in Osan, Korea. So I, I got to ask you a, a side question. I heard today that Cannon is one of the two worst bases in the Air Force to be assigned at. What do you think? So <laughs> that comes from young airmen and young <laughs> lieutenants because, you know, Clovis, New Mexico is not exactly, you know, a place renowned to find, you know, your lifelong mate if you will yeah um it was a great place for a family you know but you know this john i mean every assignment has its positives and its negatives and you optimize the good and you try to mitigate and minimize you know the not so good and uh you can find goodness in in every assignment Uh, we really love the people at clovis but uh i know young people that were interested in nightlife and all that sort of stuff. Uh, it was, it was a little tougher on them, obviously. So did you did Osan and then somewhere in there, you got sucked into the Pentagon, right? Yeah, I did, uh, two tours at the Pentagon. Uh, the first one, I was a one-star, uh, director of Homeland security. So post nine 11, they created a new position and they put me in it. Uh, for two years, my job was to figure out what's the Air Force's role in all this homeland security and whatnot. Um, and then I had a NATO staff tour. Um, that was NATO. actually, uh, actually, I had a NATO staff tour, and then I came back to the Pentagon another time. Okay, where I was the eighth A three O, which is basically. Uh, current operations and training. So I ran the largest division on the air staff for a while. I think we had about 2,500, 3,000 people wow. um, in there. So uh, yeah, I had two tours there. I had a NATO staff tours along the way. I also had, I was a chief of staff at U.S. Strategic Command. Uh, and then I was, I actually had two stints. Well, I, as the vice commander at Air Combat Command, and then I had uh, I had the honor and privilege of working with uh, uh, General David Petraeus, uh, General Ray Ordiarno, and um, uh, uh, the current Secretary of Defense, as it turns okay. out. Um, yeah, three pretty uh, big people yeah. in the Army. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Lloyd Austin uh, and I were together in Iraq for 14 months. So okay. I was, I was uh, for lack of a better term, the senior airman in Iraq. So, uh, you know, I was with those fine gentlemen and officers uh, pretty much every day of uh, that entire 14 months. I, I don't tell me anything secret or, or sensitive, but uh, kind of what were you doing over there? Well, uh, um, I was the uh, air component commander's um, uh, element there. I was a senior airman in, in Iraq. So if you might recall, our air component headquarters you know, is uh, not in Iraq and not in Afghanistan. We were fighting both of those wars at the same time. So, uh, and the air component commander, the AFSENT commander at the time, was also the ninth Air Force commander, which was a heavy load, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. So he was bouncing back and forth between the United States and the Middle East. And then he had to go forward into Iraq to talk to you know, the war fighters there and to Afghanistan at the same time. So to alleviate, you know, the coming and going, I was there every day. And, you know, if they needed anything from the air component, you know, uh, I, I took it and wrote the check basically, you know, okay. and then sorted it out later. So I had an equivalent. Um, so I was the director of the air component command element or something like that, ACCE. And there was my counterpart was in Afghanistan at the same time. So hmm. uh, both two star positions, you know, supporting the war fighting operations on the ground. Administratively, all of the 12,000 airmen in Iraq actually fell under me. So wow. technically, I was the commander of detachment one of, you know, um, uh, AFSENT, okay. Air Forces Central Command. So I was the commander of detachment one, Air Forces Central Command. And you finished that up and you went to, uh, went back to, I went back to, no, no, I went back to, uh, so I was actually the vice commander of air combat command. Then I went and did that. And then I came back thinking, you know, I'll, I'll just quietly slip away. But as it turns <laughs> out, um, they, you know, the four-star commander said, Nope, it was Will Frazier at the time. He goes, Nope, you're the vice commander. And I said, and then one time I used the term acting and I got yelled at. I get, he goes, you're not acting, my friend. You are the vice commander. I went, okay, you're the boss. <laughs> okay. He says, don't be acting on me. You know, do your thing. So uh, I, I was working hard till the last day. I thought I was going to quietly slip away. But as you mentioned, I did end up working for Booz Allen Hamilton uh, I still work for them today after 12 years. I really enjoy the work. I, I think it's meaningful. The quality of people is awesome. Um, and uh, what we do is important. And it's my job day in and day out to try to do what we can to help the warfighter. So I'm quite proud of that and what we do there. Well, I, I thank you for your time tonight. This has been wonderful. Anything uh, you want to close up with? Uh, just, you know, um, a, a repeat, if you will, uh, of what I said at the beginning, right? The most important thing you're going to say in the, is at the front and the, at the end. Uh, I would say to the cadets, you know, if, if they listen to this uh, or even if they've newly graduated, you know, that was a tough four years. But you're, in hindsight, you're going to think back 
about them being possibly the best four years of your life, certainly the most beneficial four years of your life, more than likely uh, having, you know, learned a great education and, and learn and growing up, if you will, and, and uh, building your network that uh, of friends that you can literally trust your life to and will remain friends till the day you die. Um, so hang in there. If you're having a tough time, uh, this too shall pass and, uh, you will, you will treasure the friends and the experiences for the rest of your life. And, and I think for those of you that are trying to plot a, a career path, Dave is a great example of follow the orders, take the assignments, do the best you can and think good things. will Exactly. Happen. Exactly. Just do the best you can. Excellence in all we do, as we used to say, um, and good things will happen to you. It doesn't have to be some, you know, ideal slot of, of uh, assignments to get you to the top there. Uh, he, he did all kinds of neat things on the way up. Yep. Didn't have my first staff tour until my post wing command. So there you go. All right, man. I'll, I'll call you in just a minute. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks, John. Bye-bye.